You're listening to the Brown Girl Podcast, a new show discussing various cultural and mainstream topics that impact our community from the perspectives of South Asian women. The show also aims to highlight South Asian women creators, business owners, and pioneers who are paving the way for future generations. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever your podcasts are found. If you're on Instagram, give us a follow at thebrowngirl underscore podcast to stay up to date on new releases and stay engaged with our community. Thanks for tuning in. Hi guys, thanks so much for joining today's show. My name is Julie and I am the host of this podcast. This is episode number eight and it's titled Real Estate Investing Part Two Question and Answer. So this is going to be a Q&A style follow-up show from episode four, which was titled How I Got Into Real Estate Investing and Five Tips for You. Um, So that episode, episode four, was probably one of the top episodes I've received the most engagement on. Um, It's been the most listened to so far, and I've gotten a handful of DMs and follow-up questions. So I thought it would be worthwhile to compile a few of the recurring themes from those questions and address them here as a separate solo episode. So if you have not listened to part one, I would suggest first listening to that. Um, It was episode four. So in there, I talk about how and why I got into investing in rental properties. And given the nature and purpose of this podcast, the Round Girl podcast, I thought it was also important and relevant to first share my experience of being a single unmarried Indian woman who was trying to take on home ownership for the first time and just some of the cultural stigmas I encountered along the way and how I kind of navigated through that. Um, so that's how the episode starts off. And then we delve into the meat of the topic. Um, so we talk, we walk through the process of financing an investment property because that process of getting a loan um, is different than getting a loan for a residential home. Um, There's a couple key differences to be aware of. And then I finished by sharing five tips that I learned along the way that I think could be really useful to know if you're getting into the rental property space for the first time. So I'd suggest first listening there uh, and then coming back here. So for this episode, like I mentioned, I chose five themes um, from the questions I got that I felt were worthwhile to talk more on. So um, one, we're going to talk more about what to expect as far as maintenance and maintenance expenses. Number two, we'll talk about how to gauge how much money to put down as a down payment. Uh, three, um, how we'll talk about how it is that you can be cash positive, but still show a loss on your tax returns, whereby shielding you from rental income taxes. Um, number four, we'll touch on methodologies for rent collection and how to go about increasing rent every year. And last, number five, we'll um, finish by talking about how to approach understanding what your legal responsibilities are as a landlord for your particular state or municipality that you operate out of. Okay, so we're going to go through them one by one. I have to give a disclaimer again that I'm not a professional. This is just me um, sharing what I've learned from my experiences with you all. So please um, seek out any official advice from a professional. Okay, so the first question um, was around maintenance expenses, what you can expect, how do you handle them when they 
when they do come up? Is it a lot of money, etc. So maintenance for rental properties can be one of the more challenging items to plan for because there can be so much variability. For me, um, I wanted to make sure I was buying properties that were turnkey for the most part in order to minimize maintenance throughout the year. So turnkey means that the property is move-in ready. Um, so there's you know very minimal updates or renovations that are needed. I probably get a, a note from my tenants, you know, two to three times a year, maybe two to four times a year on maintenance requests. Um, I usually end up having a plumber go out there at least one time a year, maybe some minor repair work or replacing an appliance here and there. But for the most part, it's been smooth sailing. Um, so if you're you know, trying to keep your maintenance expenses down, obviously finding property that is updated and in good conditions goes a long way. One thing I did learn that uh, I think is super important is specifically asking to understand the age of certain large appliances or equipment before putting an offer on a property. So for example, understanding how old the furnace is or the air conditioning unit against its useful life so that you can gauge whether that's something you can expect to replace in the near future. Um, those types of appliances typically only need to be replaced every 15 to 20 years, depending on the level of care and maintenance and such, but um, they will be in the several thousand dollar range to replace when you do have to replace them. So it's, it's good to have a time frame so you can at least plan for those expenses. Now, if you're getting an inspection, which you should definitely do, um, I believe the inspector will usually call that out in the inspection report. But if it's not there, it's definitely worth making note to ask. Um, another recommendation if you want to keep maintenance expenses low is also keeping your appliances like the fridge, the stove, dishwasher, similar equipment more on the basic end. I think most landlords would echo this, but unless your rentals are intended to be super high-end, luxurious properties, it's not a bad idea to keep the appliances pretty basic because those tend to inherently have fewer maintenance and technical issues that'll surface. So for example, take a refrigerator. Um, you know, all the places I've lived in as a renter, I've always noticed the refrigerators to be really basic. Like it's just a freezer on top and a fridge on bottom. There's no filtered water or ice maker or screens or anything like that. Um, now that I own rental property myself, I understand why, because keeping things basic creates less opportunity for there to be technical issues and repairs needed. Um, you know, when you have a super fancy fridge, six months from now, you may have to deal with a water leak that's originating from the cold water line of the fridge. And oh, by the way, now it's leaking down into your neighbor below's apartment and it's creating damage to their cabinets or the ice for breaks or whatever. Now you have to fix it. Um, I think there's just more headache that comes with um, having fancier equipment. Now, some people might argue that you might get higher rent if you have premium appliances. And I personally feel like there's a threshold where that kind of stuff becomes negligible. Um, I feel like the, 
the big rocks, quote unquote, that renters will typically prioritize um, are going to be things like location, price, um, size, you know, number of bedrooms and bathrooms, and a general aesthetic, meaning like they want something that's updated and modern, or maybe they don't care as much about the aesthetic. Um, and I just I can't imagine something like a fridge to be a deal breaker for most renters as long as everything else checks out, as long as the big rocks check out. Um, and you you as the owner, if you want your kitchen to have a newer sleek aesthetic, you can still put in a nice stainless steel fridge that doesn't have water or ice or anything like that. And it can it can still fit that look and style that you're going for. So personally, I veer toward keeping appliances more basic in nature because I know that inherently means less maintenance issues that'll likely come up. Okay, so now when it comes to handling maintenance issues and getting things fixed, um, unless you are a very handy person yourself, you'll want to have a Rolodex of maintenance professionals that are your go-to people. Best way to find that is through word of mouth in your local area. So I have a go-to plumber, a go-to HVAC person, a general handyman that can do, you know, small repairs around the house. Um, I think especially being a remote landlord, it, it helps to have an established consistent relationship with them. It just, it makes it a lot easier when they're already familiar with your unit or your property. They're familiar with your tenants. They have a history of what's been taken care of in the past and we'll typically prioritize ensuring good quality, consistent service, knowing that you're a repeating and loyal customer. Okay. And the last thing to touch on when it comes to maintenance is around costs. So you do want to make sure that you have a reserve from your monthly cash flow set aside to cover general maintenance um, and repairs that may come up each month. And like I mentioned, maintenance for rental properties can be one of the hardest expenses to plan for because there can be so much variability. But I think the general consensus recommends setting aside five to 10% of your gross rent to cover maintenance. Um, now that's that range will be dependent on the condition of your major appliances and equipment, how well your place is being taken care of, but five to 10% is probably a safe estimate to use at least as a starting, as a, at least as a starting point. And I'll go ahead and link an article in the show notes from Brandon Turner, who is one of the founders of Bigger Pockets. And in that article, he walks through different expenses you can expect and gives his perspective on some options to estimating what your expenses will be. Okay, so um, touched on maintenance. So moving on to the next question. So the second question was around how do you know how much is a good amount to put down as a down payment for an investment property? So I thought this was a really good question. So let's just start out with what the requirements are. Typically, investment property loans, um, most lenders will require a down payment of 20% or so. Anything beyond 20%, um, I try to run a couple different scenarios and look at a few ROI metrics to gauge what is 
economically sensible to put down beyond that minimum requirement of 20% or whatever your lender is requiring. My personal view on debt is that not all debt is bad debt. I think there were or are some older schools of thought, people like Dave Ramsey, for example, who think and preach that all debt is bad and you should avoid debt at all costs. I don't agree with that because I think if you have a good handle on money management, you can use debt as a powerful tool in order to build wealth, especially because interest rates are so cheap these days. Like you can get loans for two to 4%. And so if you're doing it right, you can leverage debt to make more money. So I don't think it makes sense to tie up all your cash into an asset because you want to minimize your debt amount when the alternative is you know, that you can throw that money into the stock market and get 10, 20, 30% returns or throw it in some other investment vehicle that will yield you a better return than whatever the cost of your debt is. And I think, I think that's important to keep in mind, whether that's getting a loan for a house or a car or whatever. Um, I recently ordered a new car and I plan to take a loan out on it. So I'll have car payments for a few years. And this is a very different frame of thought I had compared to five years ago. Because back then, I remember thinking that all debt was bad and that if I was ever going to buy a new car, I was going to buy it in cash only. But you live and you learn. So for my car, the interest rate I'm getting is for my loan is 1.49%, which is crazy cheap. So again, in that scenario, it just it doesn't make sense for me to tie up all my cash into a car when the alternative is I can make way better returns, putting my money into the stock market or another vehicle. So um, back to back to real estate, how I approach figuring out a good range for a down payment is first understanding what market rent is going to be and then running a couple different scenarios to understand what the monthly mortgage payment will be and how that's going to impact my ROI. So the two ROI metrics that are most important to me when deciding how much to put down is monthly cash flow and cash on cash return. So the first is monthly cash flow amount. So your cash flow is your monthly rental income less your mortgage payment, HOA fees, insurance, property taxes, and any other fixed expenses you have related to your rental property. So for me, having a really healthy cash flow amount each month was really important because um, my the rule to myself was I don't want to have to pull any money from my W-2 job or any other income I have to pay for rental property expenses. Like I want each rental property to kind of run as a standalone kind of business, if you will. So I wanted to make sure that I was going to have enough cash flow every month so that I could comfortably cover any maintenance or variable expenses that come up. Um, the second indicator I look for in, in uh, determining how much to put down is the cash on cash return. So um, this metric is evaluating the yearly cash flow as a percentage of the cash down payment. So let's say your monthly cash, cash flow is going to be $400, which means your yearly cash flow will be $4,800, right? $400 times 12 months. Um, and let's say your down payment is going to be $50,000. So that means $4,800 
divided by 50,000 would equate to a 10% cash on cash return. Now, opinions vary on what is an acceptable cash on cash return, but I think the consensus amongst most investors is that anywhere between 8 to 12% is a good range to be in. Personally, I aim for a minimum ratio of 10%. Um, why? Because I know that at the very least, that's like the minimum return that I feel confident I can get if I were to throw my money into um, the stock market, which is typically how I invest most of my money that's not in real estate. So those are some of the things I think through when deciding how much to, to consider for a down payment. Um, I, I have an Excel model that I use to evaluate different scenarios side by side. It's like a plug and play model where you can input different assumptions and see how the numbers shake out. Um, if you, I, I don't think I can attach that to the show notes, but if, um, if you want me to share it with you, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram or send me an email. Um, I'm happy to share that. My email is julie at theshapeoflab.com. Okay, so moving on, the third question was, how is it that you can be cash positive but show a loss on your tax returns? So in the first episode, I talked about how one of the beauties of investing in rental property is that you can be legally shielded from taxes through depreciation. So depreciation will either create a taxable loss or significantly reduce your taxable income. Um, I don't want to say the depreciation will always be enough to protect you from taxes, but I will say it's very common in most situations that depreciation will be able to shield you entirely or at least minimize a good chunk of taxes that you would otherwise owe on your rental income. So um, depreciation is a non-cash expense, meaning it's not a tangible expense that you're fronting money for. It's like an invisible expense that attempts to quantify the wear and tear that naturally happens over time to any kind of long-term asset. So there are IRS approved methodologies for calculating the yearly depreciation amount based on purchase price and useful life and things like that. So the amount that you're going to be taxed on is just the residual income after you consider all of your operating expenses and depreciation. For example, let's say you have yearly gross rental income of $18,000. I'm just making up hypothetical numbers here. This is assuming your tenants pay you rent of $1,500 each month times 12 months, $18,000 of yearly gross rental income. So then you subtract all of your operating expenses that are eligible for tax write-offs. So this would be stuff like insurance payment, HOA dues, you know, maintenance expenses, repairs that come up, et cetera. And let's say all of that totals 10,000 for the year. So now your operating income is 8,000 because 18,000 in rental revenues, less than 10,000 of operating expenses, you're left with $8,000 of operating income. From there, we can now subtract the depreciation expense. So let's say the depreciation amount for your property was calculated to be 9,000. Well, 8,000 minus 9,000 is now gonna put you at a negative 1,000. So from a tax standpoint, now your taxable income is actually a loss of 1,000 and you only pay taxes if you made money. So because you have a loss, you're not only 
receiving the benefit of your rental income being protected entirely from taxes in this in this example. Um, on top of that, the loss of a thousand is actually reducing your overall AGI that would be inclusive of all of your other income. So AGI stands for adjusted gross income. Um, that is the amount that the IRS uses to determine your tax bracket. So it is in your favor for that AGI to be as low as legally allowed. Okay, so hopefully that gives a little more color on the difference between being positive from an operating cash flow standpoint, but negative from a taxable income perspective. Okay, so next question, this is number four, was around methodologies for collecting rent and how to go about raising rent prices every year. So I mainly collect rent through Zelle, which is a money transferring platform that all the large banks partner with. So Zelle basically allows someone who's a Bank of America customer to transfer money to a Chase Bank customer um, through this through this platform. Um, most of my tenants send me rent through Zelle each month. It's super easy. It's quick. It's you know it's instant actually. And I think all you need is is an email address associated with that account. Now I know that there are other people who use Venmo. So just FYI, you're technically not supposed to be collecting payments for a business, including a rental business through Venmo, unless you have a verified business account. So that's just something to be aware of. It's probably a low risk, but I think you're better off not making Venmo the practice for collecting rent. I do have, a, I have one set of tenants that send me a check every month. Um, they're a little older. I've tried to convert them over to the dark electronic age, but I don't know. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So it doesn't really matter to me. You know, as long as I get my money on time, that's, that's all that I really care about. Now there are other, um, also there are other private landlord platforms that you can use like cozy.co. I think I mentioned that in the part one episode. So I use this quite a bit when I first started renting um, property. So how it works is you as a landlord, you create a profile and then you can invite your tenants to create a profile. And there's a, a plethora of benefits and features um, through this through Cozy, and one of which is rent collection. So from there, your tenants can connect their account, their bank account, and send money to you directly each month. And unless things have changed since a couple years ago, um, there's no fees associated either. So that's another option um, as well for rent collection. Now, as far as raising rent each year, so I've been in this rental property space for five years, and I've raised rent every year. I think that's a pretty common and expected standard. Um, for me personally, my rent increases have generally been in the three to five percent range each year. Um, you know, I'm not in the business of trying to gouge anyone over, but it is important to find a good balance between keeping this a profitable business because, um, you know, realistically, inflation is real. There's going to be yearly increases to HOA dues, property taxes, insurance, etc. But also, you want to keep your existing tenants satisfied and not feeling like you're trying to screw them over. Um, because chances are, if you are astronomically increasing rent each year, you're going to experience a lot more turnover, which comes at a cost to you as the owner. Um, I know like, if I have good tenants, I'm trying to avoid turnover as, as much as possible. 
Um, I think a good a good litmus test for me personally is I just try to put myself in the shoes of tenant and think, you know, what would I as a renter find as a reasonable increase and, um, you know, consider some of the other other elements and adjust accordingly. Okay, so we've covered four questions so far. I have one more and then we'll be done. So the last question, number five, that I got that I thought would be good to touch on was how to understand what state or city rules or laws you have to oblige by as a landlord. So I'm just gonna approach this from the standpoint of what has helped me. I'll just start by saying that the internet is a wonderful place. Like you can Google something as simple as New York City landlord rules or something to that effect, and you'll find plenty of websites and forums that you can use as a starting point um, to understand in layman's terms what you're responsible for. Yes, there are more official sources like sections of the municipal code that you can read through, but, you know, those can be inundated with confusing legal jargon. Um, the only time I've read through sections of municipal codes were if I was trying to use that as reference for something that was legal in nature, like dealing with an insurance claim or something to that effect. You can go on forums like Bigger Pockets, um, which I mentioned in, in the part one episode. You can find local subgroups specific to your city within Bigger Pockets. You can join Facebook groups. I think one of the best ways to learn and absorb information is, is just getting plugged in with others. So, for example, I'm part of a real estate investing Facebook group. And at times when I've needed an opinion or some advice or just you know, bounce ideas off of, I've been able to leverage those platforms pretty, pretty successfully. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the laws for each state and city are going to be different. So you'll need to do some individual research to understand what is applicable to you. Um, I'm just going to point out a couple common items from my experience that um, I think you you know you should definitely prioritize to understand for your particular city. Um, the first one is around security deposits. Um, make sure if you're collecting security deposits, make sure you understand what the rules are um, around when that needs to be returned to the tenant. You know, do you need to keep that deposit in a separate neutral bank account? Do you need to pay your tenants interest on the deposit that's collected? And if you do, what's the frequency and cadence of it? Because security deposits can get really dicey. Um, you know, some cities impose severe consequences for not being in compliance. So make sure you understand what your legal obligations are if you're choosing to collect security deposits. Um, the next thing um, I wanna point out is knowing how much advance notice you should be giving your tenants before entering their property. So there's rules around that, rightfully so. You know, you can't just barge in whenever you feel like it without any prior notice, even if you're the owner. Um, last thing I want to point out is that if you're part of an HOA, uh, make sure you understand what the rules are from the HOA and communicate that to your tenants. Usually the HOA, if you're part of one, will require you to attach the HOA rules and regulations documents to your lease agreement. Um, but if they don't, that's something you can take upon yourself to, in, to, to ensure that you know, you're covered from an HOA rules perspective. 
every city again will operate a little differently. So in Chicago, which is where my rental properties are located, um, the city of Chicago has a standard lease agreement that is required to be used for any rental arrangement within the city limits. And that lease document covers all the legal rights and responsibilities for both landlords and tenants. And it includes all of the attachments and riders of things that need to be communicated um, to your tenants. So it's super helpful if your city has something like that in place because it'll make sure that all of your bases are covered. Um, one example, you know, since I mentioned security deposits, like the standard Chicago lease agreement has an attachment that lays out the requirements for collecting security deposit. Um, so it says that, you know, if you're collecting a deposit, this is the interest rate for this year that you have to pay your tenants every six months. It tells you you have X amount of days to return the deposit after your tenants vacate. It basically gives you all the information you need to know if you're um, from a legal standpoint, if you're collecting a security deposit. Um, and the last thing I want to mention that helped me quite a bit um, in terms of like understanding my role and responsibility as a landlord was working with a realtor who also had a portfolio of rental properties and was a landlord himself. So going through the home buying process with him was super valuable because he was always ready and willing and able to give me insight and point me in the right direction. So on that note, you know, if you're looking to buy a rental property for, for the first time, working with a realtor who has experienced themselves in that space could be really helpful. So that kind of wraps up this last point. You know, my approach to understanding legal obligations is a combination of using the internet to do some of your own research and getting connected with other experienced investors or professionals. Um, if there's something that's truly in question that I'm finding conflicting information on, then I'll resort to, you know, reading through the municipal code, which is publicly available literature, um, or I've personally never been in this position, but you can always resort to speaking with an attorney as well. Okay, so that pretty much sums up today's show. I hope this was helpful and provided some additional um, context. If you ever want to get in touch with me to chat more on the subject, feel free to reach out. Um, you can send me a DM on Instagram. Um, our podcast Instagram handle is at the brown girl underscore podcast. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love, love if you could rate us on Apple or um, leave us a review. All right, you guys, thanks so much again for tuning in. I will catch you on the next episode.